Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What's for the state, the show where journalists talk journalism. I'm Marilyn Hetrilise. What a week. LGBTQI Australians were very happy to hear that the motion for a plebiscite has been put to bed. But Senator Eric Abetz wasn't quite so gay. He's blamed media bias for not celebrating homosexuals who come out as heterosexual. And for some actual media bias. Hurricane Matthew has claimed more than a thousand lives in Haiti. But the media spotlight has been on the storm's destruction of property in Florida. Coming up, the media influencing politics. What's the US media doing to derail Trump's campaign? Plus, Al Jazeera has launched a news game to get people interested in the Syrian war. And the New York Times has partnered with Google to moderate online comments. Joining me in the studio is Junkies political editor Osman Faruqi. Hi. G'day, how are you going? And freelance writer Ketan Joshi. Hi. Hello. And on the line from Queensland is editor of Citizen Journalist Margot Kingston. Hi, Margot. Hello. We're live tweeting and we can put your questions to our panel. The Twitter handle is Fourth Estate AU. We've heard Trump call Mexicans rapist and Muslims terrorists. The list goes on and on, and every time the media calls him out on it. Leaked footage of Trump claiming to grab women by the pussy might be the comment that ends his run for the presidency. One of Donald Trump's top supporters, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, called the media's reaction to the tape almost the equivalent of a lynch mob. He said the media failed to pay attention equally to the newly unveiled WikiLeaks documents appearing to show excerpts of Hillary's private speeches. Osman, does he have a point? No. Uh, <laughs> just to be blunt, I think, um, I think Trump's comments deserved an enormous amount of scrutiny. They got an enormous amount of scrutiny. The fact that we've seen more stories emerge today of women coming out alleging sexual assault um, uh, that Donald Trump had, had committed was more stories about him saying completely, you know, ridiculous, sexist, offensive things to women as young as 10 years old shows that this was an issue that warranted scrutiny. Does Hillary Clinton and the WikiLeaks leaked emails also warrant scrutiny? Of course it does. But does the fact that <laughs> does the fact that that happened mean that there should be less attention on Trump? No, not at all. With the exception of what he said on the leaked tape, when the media highlight Trump's most offensive remarks, he doesn't retract what he says, he doubles down on it. In the second debate, a lot was made of Trump saying Hillary should go to jail. And just today, we heard Trump at a rally in Florida geeing up the crowd by calling for Hillary to go to jail. Margot, what's the media to do when he beats them at their own game? Yeah, look, I've followed this. I've actually got a bit obsessed with the US election over over the last year, and it's been really fascinating to to watch how the the media has reported, changed its reported reporting, and, and 
and really tried to self-analyse what's happened. The, there's no doubt that in the in the early phase in the primaries that cable particularly just uh, they ran all his speeches live. He was always available. He always rang in. Um, every, he understands the news cycle to such an extent that he he has literally turned this into a reality show where as soon as any other candidate got attention, he'd throw in some other outrage. All the um, the ratings went sky high, and, and there was basically... There was no examination, really, on, on cable about what sort of man looked like they were going to get the nomination. And, you know, a, a lot of never-Trump Republicans are, are blaming the media for, for not interrogating Trump's record in the primaries. Give us a break. I mean, back in May, the New York Times wrote a big piece um, about um, how Trump treated women, including um, unwelcome um, sexual behaviour. The print media did a good job in that early phase. The the TVs did no job. And really, you know, you go back to those primaries, um, with that big field, the, the other candidates just didn't know what was happening around them, and none of them attacked until it was too late. They attacked each other. There was no oppo research. So, you know, there's a lot of blame going but going on. But the, the broader point, which there's been a lot of discussion about in the last couple of months, is this notion of, of false equivalence, that the, the media was treating Donald Trump as a, as a normal candidate in a normal campaign um, and just reporting everything he said. But the, the problem was that just about everything he said were lies. And just recently, as, as, Pete, as, as the media sort of caught up with the fact that he is actually running a, a, a reality show and, play, and blaming him, I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, he finally had to address the, the birther issue where he's, he's claimed for, for five years that um, Obama wasn't born in the United States. And he, he called a press conference which he said he'd address that. Then he made it an ad for his hotel and, and an ad for, for veterans who supported him then did a one-line statement blaming Hillary for starting it falsely, starting the rumour, and then walked out. And it was that time that the media had had enough. And, and the next day, for the first time ever, I think, the New York Times did a headline saying the lie and the no repentance. And since then, the, the, the quality media has had no compunction in writing stories about these other lies he told in the second debate. So what we're seeing now, in a way, is a pylon. But, but what I'd argue it is, it is that it's the media adapting to a candidate who is so outside the, the norms and, and, and of, of what has been political discourse that they, they've had to report it uh, differently. As far as the WikiLeaks go, in general, there's been two things that have been important. One, um, she said she had to have private and public positions. Uh, the other that she said her um, imaginary dream was, was open borders. Apart from that, what it's been is a, a pretty painful but not unexpected expose about how a professional ca- campaign is run. There have been a, a few embarrassments, but... Really surprisingly, there's actually been a few stories written about this. Is the, the, it, it, it shows what everyone's always thought and written about Clinton, that she's highly scripted and highly organised and risk-averse. So to me, I mean, if you get a tape that, that shows that a nominee for president is a sexual predator who boasts 
about um, uh, routine sexual assaults, then <laughs> then basically, unless you're Fox News, um, you're going to think that is a huge story. Mm. Katan, you've written a lot about um, this election and Trump. Now that the media seems to have made up their mind, do you think it will sway the people? I, I, I don't think it will necessarily. I, I think that there are a lot of factors that particularly in the past week or so, have actually kind of expanded past the issue of equivalence or bias or balance. So when you hear a news story about a tape in which a presidential candidate admits to uh, being a sexual predator, uh, it, it doesn't seem that any way that there's any way that you can report that beyond he admitted on tape to engaging in sexual assault. And there's almost no, no spin that you can put on that. They tried to, and there was one moment that I found really, really interesting. Like, like Margot, I've become uh, incredibly obsessed with this campaign. And I was, I was watching um, a, a TV panel, and I think it was either a Trump surrogate or a Trump supporter, was on there trying to defend his comments by saying um, that Clinton had uh, once said that she liked Beyonce. And the, the language in, in Beyonce, obviously this was just a, they were trying to sort of convert this into a, bit of casual racism, uh, you know, which which seems insane. And you can actually see it was a really important moment because it pans over to the other hosts on that show and their faces just collapse mm. because it was like they suddenly realised that this has gone well past anything like our normal understanding of bias and balance and suddenly it's it's just completely insane. So, uh, And it's really interesting to make that distinction as well that, that Margot made between... TV and um, print media, because you can see a big difference in print media. They use different language, whereas on TV, obviously, it has a much bigger audience. So they're doing things like fretting over the words that are being used, whereas in print, they can actually just say straight out, these really horrible things are happening now. According to a former Apprentice producer, there are actually far worse um, outtakes from the show than the one released this week. Despite legal red tape, should reality TV mogul Mark Burnett be forced to release these in the public interest, Oz? Oh, good question. Um, I, look, I don't. I think it would be unusual if we had if we were at a point where, because there's an election campaign that seems to have gotten a little bit out of control, we can now force people kind of secondary to what's going on who've been involved with candidates previously to just divulge everything that they knew about their candidates. I think that could end up in a pretty problematic situation. But I think I think there's kind of a broader issue, and it's something that you were asking about earlier, is, you know, is this going to change things or has Donald Trump just figured out the way to play the media? I think the problem with this election and, and why, why Donald Trump still hasn't disappeared, right, even though there were these rumours that he might be disendorsed or whatever, like there's, there's, there's two things that are different about this election. Both the candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, are enormously unpopular, but the media itself is also enormously unpopular, and it is less trusted than it's ever been before. So even though these stories break and the media talk about them relentlessly, that doesn't have the impact that it might have 10 or 20 years ago, and Donald Trump uses that to his advantage. He uses this idea... Uh, this trope that the media are just these elites, they all live in New York and Washington, and they, they, you know, they don't want you to know the truth, and I'm the one that's going to tell you the truth. He's used that to his advantage. So what happens is when he gets attacked by the media, he then says it's a big conspiracy, and he's able to, to leverage that because there is this distrust in the media. And that's not been caused by this election. It's something that has been, an influ- in, uh, been a factor in this election. And I think after the um, presidential election is done and dusted, there needs to be a discussion on how we've gotten to a point where the establishment media are just not taken seriously by the public. The job of the media is to tell stories to the public, to make sure that 
the politicians are accountable to the public. So if that trust has broken down, the, 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 the whole industry of journalism, I think, doesn't really have a purpose. So we need to figure that out after the election. Can I make another point there? Yeah, sure. I think it's really important that we just don't say the media. I mean, one of the things I've noticed, I mean, up in lights in America, and, and I just really hope that we learn from this and, and don't make the same mistake, is that there is a, a, a split. Like, you know, your base conservatives, they do not read the mainstream media. They read Breitbart and they watch Fox, which I've done quite a bit of watching. And, and those media are propaganda outfits. They run conspiracy theories about the other side. They don't report, uh, like, for example, um, Breitbart, which is, is now, you know, the leading conservative uh, website, a, a, a proudly alt-right website, whose CEO is now, whose CEO is now running um, Trump's campaign. They are not running anything on today's multiple allegations by on-the-record women about being groped by Trump. They're not running it. And, you know, like, for the for conservatives um, to say that, that um, you know, they've lost trust in the mainstream media really sticks in my craw, where you've got a, a really powerful element of the conservative media, radio show, shock jocks and, and Breitbart, um, and, and Fox, which, which are actually feeding into and stirring hatred based on, on false information. So, you, oh, and, and to be to be fair, um, reputable conservative media has been outraged by what is happening in, in these groups and, and having really in-depth discussions about how um, to rehabilitate conservative uh, media uh, as a whole. So, you know, this... this problem with, with, with Trump's base, which is basically leading to a situation where, where Trump is saying to Republicans, vulnerable Republicans, that if they disavow him or don't endorse him, then he'll get his voters to vote against them. Like, in other words, that he will bring the whole party down. This angry base um, has actually been created by the conservative media. Um, you know, you only have to watch Fox. I mean, when the, the tape broke, they didn't run anything about it for a day. When the when the groping allegations broke today, they, they led with WikiLeaks and, and ran it right 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 towards the end. I mean, you know, there is a, a fueling of this idea that the the election is going to be rigged. I mean, it, it's a really really worrying situation, and you know, we have an element of that in Australia. You know, you have your right wing media and your left wing media to be very general. But you have a, a grounding in, in facts and, and, and everyone recognising what's important. And if we go away, the way of America, where if you're on the left, you have a, a totally different reality than if you're on the right, then, then you, you really are heading, heading into very, very dangerous times. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilles, and I'm speaking with Osman Faruqi, Katan Joshi, and Margot Kingston. Can I make another point about the tape? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, getting back to why this is such an important story, you've seen the most extraordinary reaction to this story from women. Um, there's an author on Twitter who asked when the tape broke for people, for women to give examples of when they'd been assaulted. She got nine million replies. This story's gone into Teen Vogue and, um, you know, it, it's gone across women's media, it's gone across to people. It, it's Marie Claire, it, it's 
everywhere and and it, it's brought out really an underlying undercurrent of the election which is is the the gender aspect you know um nate silver the um the statistician put out two um maps if only women voted and if only men voted and it's just basically if only men voted they'd all be red and if only women voted they'd all be blue i, I think you know to, to say there's a pile on 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 this story I think that is partly explained by the fact that women have been genuinely outraged and it, it's, it's become very personal for them. And there's been a, a number of stories where female staffers have told Republican politicians to, to re- write their reactions stronger and there's been a lot of female intervention in newsrooms to go stronger. Um, it, it's, it's one of those stories that um, it, it takes over because there are very deep reasons for it to take over. Thanks, Margot. We could talk about this for hours, but I just want to move on to Hacked, Syria's Electronic Armies, which is an interactive web app produced by Al Jazeera English that aims to take audience inside the cyber conflict in Syria. The aim is for players to collect as much information as possible about the cyber war within five virtual days. They can do this by finding and interviewing sources, reviewing documents and making decisions like whether or not to pay hackers in exchange for help. Katan, these days video games are immersive plot-driven visual worlds. But can they really give someone a feel for what it's like to be in a conflict zone? I, I suspect so. I had a, I had a play of it today. Uh, it's a cool oh. little text-based game, um, and it's pretty informative. It, a lot of it seems to be based on real materials, and it's written by some people who seem to have very good knowledge of that whole issue. Uh, I, I've experimented with a bunch of different types of immersive journalism before. Mm-hmm. So I gave uh, The Guardian's VR um, story, which was basically uh, about isolation in jail, and the New York Times have done a bunch of VR stories as well. What I find to be really successful with those is almost literally the sense of immersion. So your your actual field of vision is entirely uh, taken up by the story. You, you can't open a new tab or you can't um, be distracted by something in the corner of your vision. Uh, I find that to be really successful. Uh, what I actually really hope is that this is a good first step uh, and then they actually go forward and create some more, quite literally, virtual worlds in which you can explore, move around, um, more in the classic sort of gaming style. I really liked the immersion of the um, the actual storyline. It's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Not not to not to sort of make it sound less serious, but it was it was pretty successful. I, I think the next step would be to make it actually more immersive. So what about the argument that making live conflict zone into a game trivialises the reality of warfare? I don't think it would trivialise it if the game was done properly. Uh, There are a lot of different media that can seem trivial from the first look because they're usually associated with trivial games, you know, for instance, mobile gaming, Candy Crush, Pokemon Go. But I think that if you put a lot of effort in and you present it in the right way, I I think it would go down well. Oz, do you think gaming is a thing that newsrooms should be investing in right now? Look, I don't think there's anything trivial about Pokemon Go. Let me just just get that out (laughs) there. Um, uh, uh, I don't know if newsrooms should be investing in it, but I think uh, this idea that, you know, art can trivialise serious issues is is a bit silly. Like I think, as Kedden said, uh, video games done well can tell important stories. They can immerse people in what's going on. I think lots of newsrooms that have the resources to, to invest in things like VR are doing that and doing that really well. And I think that's interesting 
And um, as mentioned earlier, like just being, you know, I did this thing, The Economist had this VR thing set up at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which is about overfishing, which is kind of a boring topic. I wasn't really that interested in it, but they kind of walk you through this whole thing. There's no escape from it. So you're kind of plugged in, you're watching a movie, but you're also part of it. You learn a lot. And I think that's a great way to tell important stories. But I'm not sure. I've never actually bought this idea that immersing people will make them more empathetic. And, I, you know, maybe I'm just too pessimistic, but I think when it comes to things like the conflict in Syria, we know what's going on. We see it every day. Like, we saw the, the picture of that boy whose family was bombed sitting kind of shell-shocked in that hospital. Everyone in Australia felt that, and the demand was, we've got to do something. But I think that's where the system starts to fall down a little bit. It's not the fact that we feel motivated and we feel upset about what's going on. It's that we just don't know what the next step is. The thing is, we already are doing stuff in Syria. We're actually bombing certain groups of people. So I'm not sure that the issue with that crisis is a lack of um, a connection to what's going on. It's not knowing what the next step is. Margaret, what do you think about these news games? Do you think players might think, I've played the game, I know what it's like in Syria? Uh, I've never played a video game. <laughs> um, the only sort of thing that I suppose would be a little little bit, I don't know, um, comparable is, remember all those years ago they had a um, program called Hypothetical? where no. they set out a problem <laughs> and the different guests had to say something and then something else had happened. I mean, you know, just theoretically, um, you know, one would hope that um, immersion in a complex situation would take away the, the constant thing that's happening these days of just instant judgments and instant emotion that mm. you get a sense of degree of difficulty. And, you know, personally, for th- things like Syria, I, I, just, um, I, I, just, I just can't watch... And I think if there was a game that, um, that that sort of went through all the different factions and all the different power plays, um, it, it might make people a little bit more sympathetic to, uh, to as to why the US is paralysed. But, you know, to me, I mean, the idea of playing a game about what to do in Syria would, would, would basically, I think, um, make me think nothing can be done, the world's about to end. You know, I... I, I um, I can see that the positives in it, but, um, you know, I, I just think some problems are maybe too hard. Well, one thing I really took away from it that you might not expect uh, when you kind of look at what it's offering you uh, was that it puts you in the shoes of a journalist and you have to make, uh, from the second that you start, you have to start making these really big decisions. You've got a limited amount of time and you've got to decide whether to trust people, whether to open sort of very suspicious spammy emails that you can choose to scan. Um, it's what the creator said. She wanted people to learn about journalism through this, not just about the cyber war. Exactly. And and I, I personally learned, probably in the short time that I spent playing it, a lot more about the process of being a journalist than I did about the actual details of the conflict in Syria. That's really interesting. I think, like, when it uh, when it comes to video games, there tends to be, like, two broad categories you can put them in. these games that are traditionally called, like, being on rails. So things like Mario, where you just kind of go across and, and do a level and there's not really a lot you can do. Or open world kind of adventures where you can kind of do whatever you want. Things like um, like Skyrim, World of, World of Warcraft, the really popular games like that. It's interesting to use that analogy to talk about journalism and storytelling in that regard because most of the time when you read a newspaper article you're kind of on rails like the journalist is walking you through what's going on you don't have any context outside of that that's the story that's it but if you can 
tell those kinds of stories either through virtual reality or through a choose-your-own-adventure-style game, you're then taking people into that open-world sort of space where they can make decisions and they can understand the complexity. And I think, Marga, you're spot on. Like, I think one of the challenges of reporting on those things is that it's hard to get the complexity in a 500-word article, but it's something that you could potentially do in a in a universe that you create through a game or through virtual reality. Look, I, I just Sorry, have this thought that I actually have played a, a game in a way. I mean, following the US election, I, I've, been, I've done it on Twitter, and you, you can actually see the intricate process of how it starts and how it's going to be framed, because Twitter is like a, a giant framing um, uh, organism for the news. And I suppose I could say I've been immersed for 12 months because that just, just that looking at how it's done and the different players um, massaging it, you, you have a, um, you know, Twitter is, is given um, uh, readers and, and, and um, the public who, who care about this stuff the most extraordinary um, window into, into how these things happen. And I noticed early on that um, journos would just have these, mo- these scathing tweets about Trump, and then this really boring print story would come out, and they've just started to turn the corner on that and actually say, look, that doesn't work, we can't do that normal, we've actually got to always write colour. Um, so, you know, the, I suppose that you could see the, the US election as, as a giant reality show and also a, a, a giant insight into the, into the process of newsmaking, which is why I suppose so many of us around the world are... Um, uh, apart from the fact that the world will end if um, if Trump gets in, um, just the most um, extraordinary um, experience. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Marilyn Hetrilis, and I'm speaking with Osman Faruqi, Katan Joshi, and Margot Kingston. Well, the New York Times has decided to partner with Google to try out moderating their comments. The Times says it has to treat comments with the same level of consideration it treats their stories. Once you put a piece out there, can't it fend for itself? Oh, man, comments are like the hardest thing in the world to deal with, I think, if you're working in the online media space at the moment. Because on one hand, they can offer so much, they can allow people to debate and discuss and to interrogate. And as a as journalist, as a writer, you can get real-time feedback and you can engage in a dialogue that can actually benefit your work. But at the same time, they can also be a cesspit of trolls and, and terrible things, I think. That, but, you know, I think to do them properly, you do need moderators. And I think the challenge with the media space at the moment is it's really expensive to hire people whose only job it is is to moderate comments. So if these guys figure out a way to do that better using, I guess, tools online and bots and Google's algorithms or whatever, I think that's actually great. If they can weed out the wheat from the chaff, separate those two things, and we can have sensible discussions, that's really great. And I think that could be a useful way to deal with this issue of online comments. If it's the media's responsibility um, to ensure the comment section is clean, does that extend to what's on a news site's Facebook page, Katan, do you think, or just the website? Facebook is a really tricky one. Moderating Facebook comments, you can't necessarily plug in a robot or an algorithm to do that. You really have to rely on Facebook letting you. Uh, On top of that, my general feeling is that Facebook tends to be a bit more of a cesspit mm, than your average sure. cesspit. <laughs> um, and so that's actually a real problem. Like I, I found an article recently that was about um, solar lights going up in India, really low cost stuff. It was such a great article. I felt so great when I saw that headline and I scrolled down a couple of little rolls on my mouse wheel and the first comment was somebody saying uh, they should stop breeding and it was just this horrible oh, racist man. comment. And, and, and so, you know, I was just like, well, 
I wish there was a way I could disable comments on Facebook. Marco, do you think reader comments build a constructive community around news or are they just really extreme opinions that are thrown out there? Well, I've got personal experience on this because I, I founded Web Diary for the Herald, Sydney Morning Herald in, in 2000 and when it first started there, there wasn't comment boxes and so I just got emails and I'd just pick interesting emails and, and put them in, in posts and then this wonderful breakthrough came about you could automatically um, post comments and in retrospect, that's when the whole project fell apart because it was understaffed, basically. It was just me. And, um, you know, you, you have to moderate on site for legal reasons and just for reputational reasons. Um, and, and I thought, look, we'll have a community and we'll have rules and, you know, people will be able to argue about the rules, but that, that just was turned into a disaster. Then I thought, well... You know, if, if you want to be on my side or on, on a news site, then you just got to trust my opinion. But it, it, it was it was just completely out of control. And you know, as as you say, you know, you've got to pay moderators to do this. Now, I know a lot of sites have have stopped for that reason, and they've got they, they've you know transferred it to, to Facebook or to Twitter. The advantage of that is is that's third party publishing platforms, so you haven't got the the legal problems. Sorry, Margot, but that's all we've got time for on Fourth Estate. Thanks so much to my guests, Osman Faruqi, Katan Joshi and Margot Kingston. My name is Marilyn Hetrelease.